my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Cameron Johnson is an American screenwriter, director, and producer who's written for such series as Fox's Empire, The CW's Nancy Drew, and BET's Zoe Ever After, which starred actress and singer Brandi Norwood. He's also co-creator and executive producer of the CW series Tom Swift, a spinoff of Nancy Drew. I first discovered Cameron after seeing his short film, You're Cute for a Black Guy, which debuted at Outfest Fusion 2015. And Cameron joins me today to share his journey and his life as a Black gay professional. Welcome, Cameron. Hi, thank you. That's a good intro. Oh, perfect, perfect. How are you? I'm good. I'm trying to have slightly less caffeine lately. And so it's starting to like drag on my soul. Because I'm just like, where is the energy? Like, where is the bounce? I need the pep. I, I go through this every few months where I'm like, I'm going to cut back. And then it's like, nah, bring on the Celsius. So um, <laughs> we are trending back upwards towards bring on the Celsius. Other than that, life is good. Okay. So bring on the Celsius, does that mean like ramp it up? So Celsius is, I mean, basically canned crystal meth. It is an energy oh, drink, like a pre-workout that has perhaps 250 milligrams of caffeine in it and a bunch of like other shit. It's like B12 vitamins and so on and so forth. And so why that is interesting is pre-pandemic, I used to go work out with my trainer and it was early in the morning. I'd be like, oh, I'll have one of these, just like half of one. And then I would drink half of it and it would be enough. And then eventually it was like, no, you need the whole one. And then it was like, I know you're not working out today, but why don't you just have the whole thing? And then I started buying them in bulk on Amazon and having perhaps two a day, because you can like time how it's about three hours up and then you crash and then you do it again. And so we got to a dark place with Celsius. So I let all of that go, but now it's like, how do I manage my legal stimulant needs? And here we are. Do all those things that you just listed. Well, um, they say the first step is admitting it. <laughs> right, right. I did admit it. I kicked, I did. I kicked it. I, we're good. I'm off. I'm off Celsius. I did have one last week, but it was delicious and I don't want to talk about it. It's fine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll make sure I stay away from it. <laughs> from my severe caffeine addiction. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So how's your new year shaping up so far? I mean, the new year is good so far. We're um, sort of deep into production on Tom Swift. We're in the room. I go to Atlanta in about a week to start production on episode 101. The personal irritation is that like my house is still being renovated. And so like I was in it for a while and now we're out because they're doing more work to it. And so I'm just like, I'm staying in like one of like a temporary apartment, but can't do that yet. So we'll give it time. Okay. So the show Tom Swift is based in Atlanta or being filmed in Atlanta? Yes. So Tom Swift is a very, very black show. Almost all of our leads and a lot of our guest cast and everything else is really black. And in looking at the different possible filming locations, it was like, if we have a scene that's set in a black church, where can we fill a black church with extras? And that's very hard to do in Vancouver where Nancy Drew is filmed. It's much easier to do in Atlanta, Georgia. And so our producers, Fake Empire, the people who did The O.C. and Gossip Girl and like a dozen other TV shows, 
they have another show called Dynasty that shoots in Atlanta at the stages we're going to be using. And we are literally right next to them. So it's a whole fake empire empire. Yeah, I've heard that for a while that Atlanta is one of the places that a lot of stuff is being filmed. Yeah, it's definitely becoming a hub, which I'm fine with. So obviously you've been busy with the new series, but what else has been going on for you during the pandemic? How have you been able to remain creative or stay active? Well, initially, I think it was really hard to remain creative because I was on Empire until like basically the week they shut the city down. That was our last week in the room. And then I had a pilot at Peacock that I owed that I needed to write. And I usually go other places to do things. I don't just stay home. I go out to a coffee shop or something like that or so has to get work done and you can't leave. And when you can't leave your house, it's sort of like, how do I become productive? I sort of respond very well to routine and structure. And so I created some structures. So my upstairs bedroom was an office, was like an office theoretically that I never used. And I was like, well, this is going to be an office now. And I'm only going to write in here. The only thing I'm going to do in here is work. And then I gave myself work hours. So it was like, I start working at 10 and I stop working at five, you know, with a little hour lunch break. And those two things combined are what allowed me to sort of retain productivity and be creative. 2020 was an awful year, broadly speaking, but professionally, it was a really good year for me. I sold four pilots and that's how sort of Tom Swift became a thing. And so here we are. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> so are you based in Los Angeles? Because I wasn't sure as a screenwriter, I know you can film anywhere, but I wasn't sure if it was best to be based in the hub of all of it. All television writing takes place in L.A. With few exceptions, there are a couple of shows that will write in New York. A lot of the Tina Fey shows write in New York and others do as well. But the vast majority of TV writing takes place in Los Angeles, even if it films elsewhere. Empire wrote here, but it shot in Chicago. Tom Swift writes here and shoots in Atlanta. You know, it's just uh, the vagaries of production are their own thing, but the writing takes place here. So I live in LA and I like LA. It's a fun place. I read that you're from the Bay Area and that you were a political science major, but that you were secretly pining to be a screenwriter. Do you want like the supervillain origin story of how have I came to be? Yes. <laughs> okay. So my dad is an attorney. He's a litigator in the Bay Area. If you were a big tech company in the 90s or 2000s or even today, and you wanted to sue someone or someone was suing you for stealing their technology, you called Dan Johnson. So he represented Napster and Apple and like a lot of like big tech companies like that. How can I put this? We are very similar in many ways. I'm like him with like empathy and social skills. And so he was assumed, of course, that because we have similar skill sets and similar minds that I too would be a, a litigator and I'd do some suing and that'd be fun. And so I went to USC thinking that I would, maybe I'd get like an MBA eventually and work in business marketing, but I wasn't going to be a lawyer. And my first semester at USC, I took a screenwriting class because I just was taking electives and extra classes. I was like, this is the best thing I've ever seen. Like, I have to do this. This is my job. And basically from that moment forward, I knew that I needed to be a writer. So when I explained this to my father as I was graduating from college, I got a degree in political science because I was like, they'll probably still pay for that. And I felt like it was useful. And also the screenwriting program at USC is a four-year program, no matter when you start. And so if you start as a sophomore, you're in it for four years. If you started as a junior, you're in it for another four years. 
because I didn't want to be a five-year undergrad. So I majored in political science, got a degree in that. And I was like, hey, dad, I want to be a TV writer. My sister is a singer or was a singer at the time, and he was going to bankroll her career. And I was like, well, can you like help a bitch get set up? Like I'm trying to get an assistant job, that kind of thing. And he was like, absolutely not. We had a huge fight. And the next day I went to use my credit cards and they were canceled. And I went to use my gas card and it was canceled. My health insurance was canceled. My car insurance was canceled. I lived in a real, real fancy sort of dumb USC kid apartment that I could no longer afford. And that began a period of my life in which I was really, really broke. I eventually was able to get a job as an SAT tutor because I'd always tested well. I got a lot of white kids into college. (laughs) I did. I did. I got some black kids too. So there came a point in like, you know, 2013, I was looking around a lot of my friends who were starting to get famous. So like at the time I was like socially familiar with Lena Waif and Justin Simeon. I mean, even Ben Jones to an extent, they were all making YouTube content and suddenly they were repped and they were working and blah, blah, blah. So I'd worked for the big tutoring company for a long time. They were racist and did not want to pay me. I brought in more clients than anyone else in the company, but they would take people who called asking for me and send them to other people. And when I went to them asking for a $5 raise in health insurance, knowing that there were white tutors who made twice as much money as I did, they said no. And so I quit and started my own company and took all my clients with me. And it put me in this position where I was sort of at a crossroads. I could sort of build a tutoring company and make that my life. Or I could take the money that I'd earned, make some web content and see if I could use that to get me over. And that's what I did. That's how I got Try This Instead, which is my very silly web series. We did pretty good. We went pretty viral. That's how I got You're Cute for a Black Guy, which we then premiered at Outfest. And those pieces combined with a pilot that I wrote called Side Pieces, which is about being a side hoe which I know nothing about and how dare you look at me that way. <laughs> that, that did really well at the time, very new website called The Blacklist. It's a script rating site. And those things combined got me my reps and my first job. And that's how I got on Zoe. There's more to it, but I'll pause there. Do you feel or think that because you were kind of forced to strike out on your own fully that that fueled your drive? Absolutely. No successful person doesn't on some level kind of hate their dad. So I I mean, for me, what it was is it was like, I knew what I wanted to do. I did not know what was going to be required to get there or what was going to be required to do it. What I took from that period of time, and you know, now that it's worked out, it's where I sort of learned about people in the world. And that's how I sort of built a narrative of like who I could be and the things I wanted to write about and the things I wanted to talk about. Could I have probably gotten it done faster without that crisis? Maybe. I also think what it did for me, honestly, is that like no one has claim to my career other than me. It's like, no, I did this on my own with the help of a lot of people who aren't y'all. And so, yeah. Now with you being a success in your chosen profession, has that helped the relationship? You hear sometimes when people strike out on their own, there may be some discord initially, but then once you prove your success, then it it kind of mends the relationship. You know, it's interesting. There's a glib answer, which is, you know, if you want to fix your relationship with your parents or with your dad, sell a couple of TV shows, (laughs) which worked. It's interesting to watch him manage the, I'm happy that you are succeeding at the thing that you've decided, but I still feel rejected by the fact that you didn't choose the life I laid out for you like this weird balancing act of like, um, 
he tells this story lately, how people keep asking him if he's proud of me. So he calls me up one day and he's like, Cameron, people keep asking me this weird question. Like, am I proud of you for the things that are happening in your life? It's like what I've been telling them is no, I am not proud of you. And the way he frames it is that since I'm not involved in that success, I don't have any ownership of it and therefore I can't be proud of it. But I am pleased with the fact that you are succeeding in your chosen career. So it's all better. But, you know, I mean, people do not change unless they want to, unless they've made an active decision to. And so I think for him, like, that's the way it is. And that's fine. The interesting dynamics with parents. What was it like for you growing up in the Bay Area? More to the point, who were you growing up? Who was I growing up? I was very much a little boy, if that makes any sense. What I mean by that is I loved and still love Nerf guns and super soakers and cars and, you know, action movies and stuff like that. It's just that I also, as I got older, also loved the Spice Girls and, you know, uh, Erica Badu and Clueless and Mean Girls. And so it was an interesting dichotomy between like a lot of traditionally masculine interests paired with like a pretty fun kid. I've always been this way. I've always been like, you know, shorts and limp wrists and such. I guess that was who I was. And I guess who I continue to be. I was a little mean. I will cop to that. Mostly just because I can be very sort of verbally sharp, shall we say. So that's a thing we've worked to deal with. Elementary and like middle school were pretty fun, but I had a, a pretty sort of traumatic high school experience. I was sent to a school I did not want to go to. It was sort of worse than I imagined it would be. In the Bay Area, sort of people tend to send their kids to the local private day schools. I got into one that I was really excited about. My parents were like, that one's too far away. We'll go to this one that is much closer to where we live. And it was just a, a really awful experience what I call barrier racist white kids. No one who would ever say the N-word or would like call you a name or something like that, but who inherently believe that black people are inferior to them mm-hmm. and who treat you as such and are surprised when you're not and angry when you're not. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, you know, I'm a kid who's not out, but where it's very obvious that I'm gay. Didn't have a lot of friends. I was not a popular kid. I definitely experienced a ton of depression. I tried to kill myself. It was a very challenging era. Going to USC uh, and going to college and being free from all of those people and being able to make my own social life and have freedom from my family as well was just the best thing that ever happened to me. And admitting to yourself those interests that were outside of what is expected for a boy, was that in line with uh, realizing that you were gay? I don't really know. I think I consciously realized or at least made myself aware that I was gay or at the time I thought I was like, oh, maybe you're bisexual. When I was like perhaps 15, 16, that's when I was like, oh, that's what's happening here. But my interest in feminine things was never something that I felt particularly like ashamed of. It was just sort of like, this is what I like. I remember inviting all of my male friends over when I was like 12 or 13. And I was like, you have to listen to the most incredible album I've ever heard in my life. I know that we're really in like a Dr. Dre space right now, but y'all the Spice Girls. But it wasn't like, oh, I'm gay. I didn't have like a conscious awareness of the fact that I was gay. It was like, this is just what I like. 
I want to listen to all these female singers. I didn't particularly dress flamboyantly. And I also, at the time, frankly, still had crushes on girls. I still really wanted Veronica Finch and Kirsten Conti to go on dates with me. Mm-hmm. And, and it was like this sort of, this unspoken, like, but you're gay. Why would you want to go on a date with me? And it wasn't until I was older that I realized, I was like, oh, that wasn't rejection. They saw you before you saw you, if that makes sense. No, no, I understand that. I had that similar story. Mm-hmm. It's like when I came out, I had yet to have anybody fall off their chair. Yes. <laughs> you know. One girl said, duh. And I was like, you know what? You didn't have to do that. She did give me my moment initially. And then we got into the elevator and she was like, can I say what I was actually thinking now? <laughs> <laughs> so as a writer, um, at least within your own internal dialogue, when did you discover your passion for writing? I was always person who was telling stories, if that makes any sense. So when I was younger, I used to make up long narratives. I had like sort of a running soap opera in my mind that I would sort of tell myself, sometimes out loud, either in the car with my parents. It was just like a soap opera about like three sisters and their mean mom. Like before I was going to sleep, I would do that. So I was in middle school, I wrote a lot of like, they were basically op-eds. It was during the Clinton administration. It was right as like Clinton was being impeached for getting his dick sucked. I was in eighth grade and I was like newly becoming politically aware. Another important part of my life is I'm quite into politics. That was my alt career. The political science degree wasn't just for law school. So I just started writing essentially were like op-eds for my teacher. And I'd be like, hey, I wrote this thing. I'm turning it into you. I don't know why. I just, I wrote this opinion piece on what Bill Clinton is doing and I'm turning it into you. And I kept doing that. And then later in high school, I discovered the cringeworthy art form that is slam poetry. My friend Yaley Kamara, who is now a poet and professor at IU, she was doing it. And then all the Black kids were doing it. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I have to do slam poetry too. Basically, I look at that work now and I think about how similar it is to what I do. It was always sort of pretty introspective. It was always big and bombastic. I was not Robert Frost. I was not trying to write about, you know, the trees on Walden Pond or something like that. There's one poem I got in trouble for because I performed it at a Poetry Slam series that I had hosted, a tournament that I'd hosted. And it was about a kid at our school who was racist. I said his name in it and it was very funny. The school like found out about it because it was a little private school. They made us go to lunch together to like heal the community. All that early writing is very much like what I still kind of do today, which is look at the world around me, take experiences from my own life, and try to just turn up the volume on them and make them into some form of art. Now, you mentioned about growing up with race and racism. When were you aware of that being a challenge? Aware of it and aware of it being a challenge are two different things. I have two Black parents. I grew up in a Black city but I lived in the white part of said black city. People who are from Oakland, I'm from the hills, but not Montclair or Piedmont, I'm in between the two. And so with that said, as I was growing up, I was always aware that I was a black person. Racism for me was always white people not understanding why I was where I was. It would be like, we'd go on vacation, we'd go to Hawaii and the little white kids would be like, is your dad a basketball player? Oh wow. You know, you followed in the store 
what's another example? Or there's a Ian Palson when I was in my other private school for K through eight, I offered him Cheetos and he said, I won't take Cheetos from your dirty black hand. But racism for me was always like, aren't these people dumb? Toni Morrison talks about how she always knew that the people who practiced racism were bereft. She always felt like she had a sense of superiority towards them. And so I don't necessarily think I'm better than anyone, but when I would have these experiences, it would always just be like, let me run on back to my friends who are like me or my dad or my mom or my sisters and be like, look at what these fucking idiots said today. And then we'd have a good laugh. And then that would be that. The racism I talk about experiencing in high school, because I mean, my elementary school was like this super duper liberal hippie. We weren't allowed to compete. Like you could get in trouble for like being too competitive in PE class. And so that was not like the experience that I had at St. Paul's. But when I got to my high school, it's uh, a bunch of wealthy white kids who have liberal points of view, but still suffer from the, the sort of racism that is endemic to whiteness. And so things would happen like my mom had a nice car. She had a Jaguar. And so one day a girl walked up to me. And she was like, oh my God, your mom's car is so pretty. What do your parents do? And like, my dad's a lawyer and my mom doesn't work. Then she then starts making a series of comments, asking me questions about my hair and the shape of my eyes. When I had hair, it was very long and curly. I'm like, oh, well, that's just what I look like. And she's like, okay, so your dad is white then? Because the assumption, of course, is that the only way to have a Jaguar is if you are half white. I guess now we would call them microaggressions. And in some cases, macroaggressions. I mean, the kids would come to the dances dressed up, Afro wigs and gold teeth and chains and think that that was so funny. I was president of Black Student Union for a while. And when I would try to like talk about these things or the experiences that we have at the school, the school's like, but, but we can't be racist. We're a community. Like we can't engage in racism. We're liberals. We're good white people. We live in Oakland. We're going to vote for Barack Obama. We don't know who he is yet, but we're going to. It was very that. And so my experience of racism was always that these people are idiots and they don't understand the world in the way that I do. But it wasn't until I was older, pretty much actually, honestly, in college, that I realized that racism could prevent me from having things that I wanted. And so what I mean by that is like, it's one thing to know that so, you know, my mom would paint my toy guns. Like, so I couldn't have guns that looked like guns. One time I did get one and she painted the tip of it red because a kid in Oakland had gotten shot by the police for having a toy gun. So with that said, like, it's one thing to be aware of the fact that you are a black person in a black world. I'm also very tall. It's one thing to be aware of that, but it wasn't until I was older. I was like, wait, 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 wait a second. There's shit that I want that it's going to be more difficult for me to get because I'm black. Not just these people are idiots and I'm smarter than them. I may be smarter than them, but they're going to like work together and do some shit for themselves. I'm going to have to work extra hard in order to get those things. I think it's a testament to perhaps the sense of privilege that my parents raised me with, which is like that there's nothing you can't have. You're smarter than those people. You can do whatever you want, blah, blah. And it sort of protected me from ever feeling like being black was anything other than a gift and a blessing. It was an interesting sort of realization to be like, oh, okay, cool. So like, there's some stuff to overcome here. It's not just microaggressions and dumb comments. We're going to have to like do some heavy lifting. What I hear with your upbringing and then what I know of the work you've done and just what you shared is that you've used your upbringing and your platform and your schooling and your intelligence to really bring these types of 
issues, these topics to light. James Baldwin said, and I'm gonna say this quote, till the day I die, it is the job of the writer to excavate the world that created him. I take that job very seriously. But what's more though, is that like, I was not successful as a writer when I was trying to write other people's lives. When I, especially when I first started out as a writer, I was kind of scared to write about black people because I mean, it was a sort of, it was a different time. I wrote about three white brothers who one was a football star and one was an agent and one was a reporter and the reporter was gay and blah, blah, blah. And it was sort of soapy and fun. I think it was a great pilot, but I would go into meetings and people would be like, so you're the tall, funny black gay guy. Why did you write this? What purpose does this serve for you? And I think some black people in this business look at that question and see it as inherently sort of racist. Within reason, anyone should be able to write whatever they want. But when I realized that like, okay, so the first thing I can do is like, I can write about the things that I know uniquely that will surprise the reader. And the first pilot I wrote is literally called Me in High School. It's about the day I tried to kill myself, but it's hilarious. And those doors, exploring those parts of my life as opposed to trying to imagine what someone else's was, are what changed my life. What it's a reminder to me of is that anything that I produce or create be it professional or personal, it has to feel authentic and genuine here. Yeah. And that can look a lot of different ways. It doesn't just mean everything needs to be about a Black gay guy, but it doesn't hurt. It's not like we have so much content that the market is saturated. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, is it okay, because you've mentioned it a couple of times about, you know, the suicide, was that around being gay or what was... Uh... I'm very healed on that. We can talk about it. It was also a long, long time ago. I was 15. It was not around being gay because being gay never seemed like something I could fix, if that makes any sense. Like, I think when I became passively aware of it, when I was probably 13, because people started treating me differently and I was like, oh, I wish I didn't know what being gay was and then I wouldn't have to be it. But it was like, all right, this is what we're doing. There was a slow sort of rise to acceptance and expression of that, but I never was like, oh, I have to change and I can never tell anyone. Like, I'm very fortunate in that way. No, what happens is this. My family was sort of disintegrating. My parents had a pretty messy divorce. My sisters had a number of mental health challenges that made, you know, life pretty difficult. And in addition, I'm at this school and I don't have any friends and I'm really lonely. And then you add the dollop on top of that, which is like, oh, and you're gay and people don't like you because of that. But no one can say it. The one thing that I sort of was proud of and that sort of brought me joy was that I had made myself the president of the Black Student Union. Like I had taken this group that was sort of not taken seriously on campus and that didn't have any power, didn't have any money, didn't even have a place to meet. And I'd made it a thing. And I was so proud of myself for doing that. And the beginning of my sophomore year, they were like, okay, so Cameron, you did all the work. We'd like you to continue doing all the work. But we'd also like to elect the seniors so they can put that on their college applications. And for some reason, that was just kind of it. That was sort of the last thing that I could take. And so I went home and I got into my car, which was leaking exhaust, and I let the exhaust kind of pour into the car. I have very severe allergies. And I started sneezing and I made the conscious decision. So I got out of the car and I called my god sister, Danielle. And we had just gone through like the suicide checklist like, hey, your friend might be suicidal if they're doing the following in health class. So things like, oh, they're giving away things. They're talking about themselves in the past tense. After a period of depression, they're experiencing like unseen euphoria. Those are all sort of symptoms. 
like on the phone and I just did the list. And she was like, wait, hold on. And so then suddenly my phone rings and it's my other friend, Eric. And Eric kind of kept me on the phone. And then I look into the driveway and Danny's dad like pulls into our driveway. And he's like, hey, let's go hang out. Mm. I was no longer in danger at that point, but they very much sort of came to my rescue. You know, in the moment, it just felt like nothing is possible. My life is never going to change. But when I look back at it, it really was the combination of the beginning of the disintegration of my family and the fact that I just felt so unwelcome socially that I was like, I really know what the fuck to do anymore. Hmm. I did a lot of therapy and now we did. Thank you for sharing that. It's again a reminder of, I believe, when it feels appropriate or okay for me to share our stories. James Baldwin helped me go tell it on the mountain. When I read that, it was almost like reading my diary. So, uh, yeah, so thank you for that. So to talk about your current series, Tom Swift, for those who may not know, can you share a little bit about that? So what happened is this. So the Tom Swift books are about 100 years old. I think they first came out in 1918 or 1922. They were about a pretty white boy who invented things and saved the world. So if you think about the taser, there's a Tom Swift book called Tom Swift and His Electric Rifle. And some kid read that book, grew up and invented the taser and named it after Tom Swift and his electric rifle. These books are all owned by the Stratemeyer Syndicate, which are the same people who own Nancy Drew and the rights to Nancy Drew. And the showrunners of Nancy Drew were like, we wanted to do a spinoff. They tried to do the Hardy Boys. They couldn't get their rights. Mm -hmm. And so they decided, well, what if we did Tom Swift? And in their infinite brilliance, Melinda and Noga, who are the co-creators of Tom Swift, were like, what if we make it a Black gay guy who's like rich and cool? And then there was a long pause as they all looked at each other on the Zoom and they were like, wait, we need a Black gay guy because we are not that. And so maybe we should go find one to add to our creative team Mm -hmm. and then we'll do this thing together. And so that is where I come in. I finished up on Empire and I was interviewing for Gossip Girl. I'd been being dumb on Twitter and Josh Safran, who is the showrunner of the new Gossip Girl spinoff, DM'd me and was like, hey, I've been following you for some time. By the way, if you're a writer, please pay attention to your social media and be good all the time because people are watching. And so he DMs me and he's like, hey, would you be interested in interviewing for Gossip Girl? So I send in the sample. I go on the interviews. The interviews go great. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm writing on Gossip Girl. I love Gossip Girl so much. It's going to be so great, blah, blah, blah. And in the second meeting, one of the non-writing producers, Liz Rowinski, was there. And I could just sense that something was off. And I didn't know what it was. And I can't seem to save it. It still went great, but I just was like, something is wrong. But really what it was is that something has shifted. Because the next day, my manager got a call and said, like, I don't think Cameron's going to get this Gossip Girl job, but we have this other thing. And so would you be interested in talking to the Nancy Drew showrunners about the other thing? So I had a couple of meetings with Melinda and Noga, and they were like, we can't exactly tell you what we're thinking about doing, but do you like science fiction? Do you like fancy cars? Tell us your superhero villain origin story about your dad. Liz had heard that story before. Just say that, say that story again. We had our next meeting, like, so this is what we're going to do. We're doing the show Tom Swift and we're trying to make it about a black gay billionaire. And this is who like saves the world. And you want to join us? And I was like, absolutely. They had figured out 
some of it, but it's really important to have people who are authentic to the identity that you're trying to write about, be a part of it and kind of drive the car. We got together, we did what we call a hive mind. We made our pitch real fun and cool. And then we went to the studio. The studio was like, cool, cool, cool. And then we went to the network. The network said, yes, we pitched that. And then we've been working on it since I think September of 2020 is when we started. But we wrote story doc and then we wrote an outline and we wrote the pilot which is episode 215 of nancy drew and so i was in their room for a little bit figuring that out and then we shot said pilot and then we wrote like the scripts that will be episode 101 of the tom swift show and here we are and so we got our series order at the end of august what the show is about it is about a black gay guy who is in his mid-20s. He's being played by Tian Richards and who has far more abs than I ever could. <laughs> Tian is in great shape. Follow him on Instagram. If you love yourself, go for it. <laughs> he's real smart and he's really good at a bunch of things, but he's got a lot of growing up to do. His family owns a big company that's sort of like, they basically own like General Electric and they've been wealthy for many generations. So they're very much like talented 10th Jack and Jill Blacks. Something terrible happens that I can't give away. And Tom is forced to sort of take the reins of many things and figure out a mystery that will uh, drive us for the series. And so he's joined on this quest by two, by sort of our, our Swift squad. One of them is his best friend, Zenzi, who is like sort of his Girl Friday right hand. And then his bodyguard, Isaac, who is a black trans man who kicks a lot of ass. And they go on this adventure and he's got a little brother, Lino, and a mom, Lorraine, and they all go on this adventure together to like solve the, the mystery of this thing that I can't tell you about. What it is basically is Black Gay Iron Man. It's funny. It's, you know, soapy as fuck. It's really, really gay. And it's really, really fun because it's this sort of like mission-driven show where there's a thing that we want to do and we're going to do it. And will actually be the first network TV show to ever be about the life of a black gay man in history. So, hey, here we are. Nice. I love that. That's amazing. It really is. And then, too, to hear that the people behind it recognized right away that they needed somebody who was black and gay to create this story to help it become more authentic is, is really good to hear. I mean, they're the best people. Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage. Josh Schwartz created the OC, then Stephanie, she was one of his producers on the OC, then she worked on the OC with him as a writer, and then they created Gossip Girl, they created Heart of Dixie. They've got five shows on the air right now, like as we speak, that they produce, and they've got a really great sort of team of people who do that work. And then Amnoga and Melinda are just the most thoughtful, collaborative, kind people I've ever worked with. They are just the best humans, and I think we make a good little, you know, leadership team, and we're doing it. Please watch it on the CW. We've on DVR, watch it on CW app, watch it on CW.com, do it. You said something that I really like. You changed it from something went wrong to something shifted. I really like that. What I was feeling, honestly, is the tectonic shift of the universe, if that makes any sense. And it's just this feeling of like unease. Because I thought I'd fucked up the interview and blown my dream job. And what it was is that this has opened a door that you don't, no is open yet. Mm. I had the opportunity to not step through it. You know, they called me and were like, do you want to take this meeting? And my manager was like, ah, it's about development. It's like, take it if you want to. I always take the meeting. Like entertainment industry people always take the meeting. That's what I did. I took the meeting and here we are. 
I discovered you, I saw it on YouTube, You're Cute for a Black Guy, which at the time for me was a great thing to discover. Thank you. Yeah, it really was. I I actually wasn't aware at the time that it was at Outfest, but I watched it so many times because it really resonated with me for a couple of different reasons. But can you talk a little bit about that project? So Your Cute for Black Eye is a documentary short that I made in 2015, I think. I was having some trouble getting a date online. I was using OkCupid and I was failing miserably. And I was like, I'm kind of cute. What is the problem? Like, I don't understand what the issue is here. But the Lord spoke to me and he's like, so Cameron, um, this is probably because you're black. And then I looked into a bunch of data and that's actually true. And so the first sort of iteration of this is I wrote in an article called Is OkCupid for White People? In it, I made an identical profile to myself. I asked a straight friend of mine who lived in Massachusetts. And I was like, hey, can I use pictures of you for an experiment? So I made this profile. I didn't send a single message. I just made a new profile, answered some questions, put my information in there, and then left it. And I got 300 times the responses in one week than I had as myself in a year. I'm not a whites-only Black gay. And so a lot of these responses were from Black gay men. Oh, really? Some of whom were people that I'd messaged. Honestly, there was one guy who I talked about in the, in the piece where I'd messaged him as me, and he was like, hey, nice to meet you. Check out my YouTube channel and watch my songs. And when I was a bland white guy with the exact same words on my profile, which apparently he hadn't read, he was like, hey, oh my God, we love all the same things. I would so love to go on a date with you. He hit me up three separate times without even getting any sort of response. This was a black gay guy. This was a black gay guy. And again, I didn't send any messages. I didn't reach out to anyone. I literally was just like, let's see what happens. That was a weird and fascinating experience, but it sort of gave me insight into the fact that, you know, dating as a black gay man in Los Angeles is fucking hard and a little weird. That was the first thing I'd ever wrote that went viral. You know, and it did so without me really having to do anything. I think I put it on Reddit in the OkCupid like forum and it just, I would check the views and be like up and up. And I was like, how did this fucking happen? With that said, that was like sort of where the seed of like, I want to examine race and dating and the rest of it and what that looks like in people's lives. And so I have a large social circle of Black gay men, some of whom are in relationships with other Black gay men, some of whom are in relationships with other people of color, some of whom are just strictly pink, who only want the white meat. And I wanted to have a really awkward, uncomfortable, but thoughtful discussion with these people about that. And I wanted to talk about the role that pornography plays, reinforcing a lot of the stereotypes and so on and so forth. So as we got there, I'd produced things before, but I didn't really have a clear idea of how to do all of this, like on my own. So I hired a DP who fucked up the framing. And so that's why there's like that little thing on the side. The production values were crazy. The sound was bad. I had to have people go work on the sound. And as we were doing it, so I interviewed all of my friends. I interviewed Nicordelay and Montre, who Montre used to date a lot of white guys, and now Nicordelay and Montre are married. I interviewed my friend Ian Westland, who rather explicitly only dated white men. He was the guy with the beard. And then I interviewed my friend Chuck, who's also a TV writer and has had sort of very diverse romantic interests. And then I interviewed my friend Malik. And so we were sitting at the end of the interview, and I was like, shit. There's a lot that's missing here that I wanted to get. 
I pre-interviewed everyone. I was like, this is what I want you to say. This is what I want you to say. This is what I know you're going to say, blah, blah, blah. And not in like an, I faked it way, but in like an, we've had these conversations. You've talked about this. Tell me your crazy story and like, tell me your thing. And some of them just weren't doing it. And I realized, oh shit, I'm going to have to interview myself basically and fill in the gaps, which is not a thing that I had planned on doing. I was like, I'm behind the camera. I'm not going to be vulnerable in the way that you people have been. And that's why you see me in it. Montre interviewed me and sort of we got what we needed. And then I cut it together and I knew, okay, we kind of got something special here. This is kind of the kind of hard hitting cut through the zeitgeist kind of shit that I've, I've always wanted to do. I didn't think about like you interviewing yourself, but you doing that. Yeah. You were one of the people that stood out to me because you talked about like, we have to pause and love ourselves or, you know, dissect why I may be attracted to this person. Yeah. It always struck me as interesting that people never interrogate their attractions. For me, when I was younger, especially in my like, you know, late teens, early twenties, I was like, okay, well, why do you only want to go out with the mats and the breaths of the world? Why are those the people that you find attractive? Like, why is that? And when you kind of pop the hood, it's very much Scooby-Doo pulling off the mask meme, surprise, it's white supremacy. And like, that's something that you can change and that you can interrogate and that you can get away from. I think people feel sort of like they are slaves to their attraction, but we're not. I want to be into people who look like me and are like me. And it's really been a sort of a force for good in my life that I've been able to do that. Mm. But it was definitely a thing I had to push myself to do. I think I had to like at least ask the question of why before I was able to do it, not push myself. But what is this really coming from? And how can you learn to find people who are like you attractive? Yeah, like I said, it really came at a time that was important for me because I was online dating off and on and afraid to look at the realities of just because a person is expressing interest doesn't mean they're expressing interest actually in me, the person. Mm -hmm. For me, I thought your piece captured that. So yeah, thank you for that. And that kind of ties into, I believe, what you're doing now with your writing. But also, I came across your Melanin Meetups talk that you did. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I really like that. And you mentioned you're cute for a Black guy and then about the importance of imagery. And I want to quote what you said. Love and fiction is a humanizing force. Thank you. Yeah. And I think that ties into what you're doing as a screenwriter. And for me personally and professionally, too, is like, the importance of getting our images out there, our images that promote and celebrate and fuel us. I mean, that's definitely my goal. And I definitely, look, um, spoiler alert, Tom Swift sure does date a lot of gorgeous Black men. Not necessarily as a rule, but like, it just happened to be all the people we cast. Oh my God, I don't know what happened. But I mean that shit. And the thing is like, I think if we look at what we're fed, the point of that whole talk in terms of what we're fed is you go on TV and you look at relationships as gay people and we're fed two narratives. One is that racism does not exist among gay people. And the second is that black gay people only find themselves in interracial relationships. That black gay men should prize and pursue white men and they should value their interests differently and so on and so forth. And while it doesn't affect all of us, it does affect enough of us that I think it's important to sort of see images of love and passion and innocence between black men. There's so many movies about two teenage white boys 
who fall in love at summer camp or on a farm or such and such, or 20 something white boys who fall in love in the dance class and such and such. We don't have anything like that, nothing. It can kind of fuck with your mind when it's just like, so do black people get to be innocent? Do black people get to be exploratory? Do black men get to experience compassion and love and kindness and excitement with each other? Mm I think that for me, at least, I'd like to answer that question with a resounding yes. And since I have the power to do that, I'd like to make it so that you can turn on the Tom Swift show or you can turn on like any of the other things that I write. And you can see black people who find other black people attractive and are falling in love with them and enjoying themselves and having a good time and have all different variations of color and class and speech pattern and all of that, because that's much more interesting to me than the white gaze of like telling stories about, you know, like how being with a black man helps me understand racism. I'm in an interracial relationship and so I'm cool. But on TV, I guess I'm trying to say you are beautiful and the people who are like you are beautiful. I wrote this down too. You're someone's black boyfriend, TM. I love yes. that. <laughs> Got to put the TM on it. Yeah. Which, you know, ties into you, you saying, you know, most of the images we see of us black gay men when we're in relationships are not with other black gay men. Do you follow black gay weddings on Instagram? No. <laughs> yes, I do. It's very cute. It's black gay men getting married to each other. It's, it's a lot of Atlanta vibes. Uh-huh. I've seen so many white gay weddings. I've seen so many rustic or Palm Springs and we're in matching tuxedos and holding hands. I've seen so many of those. And if you're just looking for like fun romance imagery, this is great. They look like us. It's beautiful. I definitely have to look them up. <laughs> As a writer, as somebody who's getting these great images out there, is there a resistance in the community and the entertainment industry to show Black gay love between two Black men? I don't think there's a resistance. You have to think about who's writing the shows you're talking about. So the vast majority of screenwriters are white. Like there are a couple hundred black screenwriters that are in the Writers Guild and are writing for TV. I don't think it's necessarily a resistance. I think if people try to diversify their shows, they often do it in ways that they understand. And so if you're a white showrunner or a white person on a white staff and you're like, well, yeah, why can't we make his boyfriend black? Like that would be cool. And it's usually very well intentioned. I don't think there's sort of like any sort of additional agenda for black gay love, but I think there'd have to be two black gay characters on a show for that to happen. And that happens pretty rarely. And there'd have to be someone who sort of actively made that choice. When I was on Empire, there was an active choice to say Jamal only dates Black men. There were all sorts of different Black men. Some were good for him, some were not. They had different jobs, they had different lives, but it was like, yeah, Jamal only dates Black guys after season one. But someone has to make that conscious choice. And then in addition to that, someone has to have the power to say, yes, I want to make that happen. And networks, you know, have to say, yes, we're cool with that. These networks approve all of your casting. I'm grateful to the CW for all of their approvals so far. Reminder to the importance of needing more Black gay screenwriters, because I know you mentioned that there are totals around 300 in the Writers Guild of just Black writers. How many do you know of that are Black gay writers or LGBT? I have no idea what the actual numbers are, but it is a very small community. I wouldn't imagine it's more than 5% of that number. Okay. 
do you have any other projects that you can talk about? I have a jukebox musical with a studio that I'm really excited about. Another project that hasn't been announced with a streaming service about a Black guy guy and set in the world of reality TV. And I do have another project that is sort of loosely based on my dating life that is also in development. But right now what I'm doing is trying to get Tom Swift on TV. Do the big lift of making it happen. As an out gay writer, is there ever pressure or suggestions that you should remain in the closet? Uh, not in the lives I've lived. Not all of the jobs, but a lot of the jobs I've had, I've gotten partially because I'm an out gay man. You know, on Zoe Ever After, like I earned the job, but there was also a black gay character and they wanted at least one black gay person who could be on that staff and sort of offer some modicum of authenticity there. On Empire, there was another black gay guy who was on that show who'd been with the show for a long time and was sort of had graduated to a position of leadership. And I think they were looking for how do we add more people there? Would I've gotten the job if I weren't a black gay man? Uh, Probably not. I think that was kind of what they were looking to do. I've never been pressured to be less out or less gay in my career. Have you ever been approached, because seeing you talk on camera, you're naturally funny and intelligent. Have you ever been approached to do any on-camera work? I am in a Lifetime movie called The Tenth Date that stars Megan Good. And my friend Nzinga Stewart directed it. She's a great TV director and music video director. And I play a guy who is a um, asshole, um, I think is the technical term. Uh, basically, <laughs> they're at a bar and there's a bisexual guy who's in a relationship with a woman. And so I hit on the bisexual guy and my name is like Gorgeous Man or something like that. And I hit on the bisexual guy and then he rejects me. He's like, I'm with my girlfriend. How dare you hit on me? And I tell him, basically, you're still gay. Call me later. Secretly, I was like a model when I was in college. I've done commercials and stuff like that. I'm not actually a good actor. I'm good at playing me. So I can be Cameron Johnson in any number of modes, but I can't really do anything other than that. You just want the Cameron show, then sure, I'm more than happy to do the Cameron show. It's also just not something I find super interesting. The performance I enjoy is I enjoy pitching, I enjoy you know interviewing and stuff like that, but I'm not really interested at the moment in being like the star of a show. I can definitely see natural public speaker. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I'm good at that. I can just be pretty for fun, not pretty for money. Like, that's my goal. Pretty for fun, not pretty for money. That's a good quote. <laughs> well, I uh, thank you so much again. I knew your work from a few years ago. And then I was like, oh, wow, you're much more accomplished than I realized, which is great either way. But yeah, was, I'm really glad that you took the time to come on here. So thank you. I appreciate you. And I'm so glad that we had a chance to talk. Where can we find you online? I am Cameron J. Awesome on all platforms, Instagram, Twitter, all the rest of it. So we are branded. Come see me. I'm funny on Twitter. I'm real good with the outfits on Instagram. And also, if you like renovation content, I renovated my house and there's a lot of house porn on my Instagram profile. Thank you so much. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time. <laughs>